Good evening. My name is Monique Michelle, a board member of the Idaho Humanities Council and owner and director of the Ballet Folklorico Mexico Lindo from Southwest Idaho. I am also the diversity, equity, and inclusion director and junior high Spanish teacher at Foothills School of Arts and Sciences in downtown Boise, Idaho. It is my pleasure to welcome you to, tonight, to tonight's discussion on why do we see media as polarizing with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Maria Hinojosa and award-winning journalist Mark Trahan. Tonight's discussion will be moderated by my fellow IHC board member, Bill Manny. Tonight's presentation is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative funded by the Federation of State Humanities Councils through a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. We are incredibly appreciative for their support. Before I introduce tonight's guests, I would like to remind you that you can submit questions for our panelists via the Q&A feature located at the bottom of your screen. It is now my pleasure to introduce tonight's special guests. Maria Hinojosa dreamt of a space where she could create independent multimedia journalism that explores and gives a critical voice to the diverse American experience. She made that dream a reality in 2010 when she created Futuro Media, an independent nonprofit newsroom based in Harlem, New York City, with the mission to create multimedia content from a POC perspective. As anchor and executive producer of the Peabody award-winning show Latino USA, distributed by PRX and co-host of Futuro Media's award-winning political podcast In the Thick, Inojosa has informed millions about the changing cultural and political landscape in America and abroad. In 2022, Futuro Media and PRX received the Pulitzer Prize for audio recording. Mark Trahan is editor-at-large for Indian Country Today and leads the Indigenous Economics Project, a comprehensive look at Indigenous economics, including the economic impact of climate change. He was hired to revive ICT after it went out of business in 2017. The success has been phenomenal. The digital site now reaches 700,000 people a month, and the broadcast has carried on two dozen public television stations. Trahant is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and has held endowed chairs at the University of North Dakota and University of Alaska Anchorage. He is a citizen of the Shoshone Bannock tribes. Moderating tonight's discussion is Bill Manny, my fellow IHC board member. He is a producer at Idaho Public Television and has been a reporter and editor at newspapers in Oregon, Idaho, and Washington, D.C., including 18 years at the Idaho Statesman. Bill, I turn it over to you. Thank you, Monique. And thank you to everybody who's joining us for tonight's discussion from around Idaho and I think from around the country. We have people uh, zooming in from around the country tonight. Um, I want to remind people that if they have questions for our panelists, there's a Q&A tab at the bottom of your Zoom screen. So you can uh, ask those questions and they'll be forwarded to me and we'll get to as many of those questions as we can this evening. Um, so I think uh, Mark and Maria, we can't have a conversation about you know, American media and polarization in this country without talking about what has been dominating the headlines and the TV screens and the radio broadcasts for the past two weeks. And that is 
you know, the, just the, the tragic violence we've seen across the country, including in Buffalo, New York, and, and Texas. So I guess I just wanted to start with, with that question for you. And let's start with Maria. How do you think, how do you think the coverage has been? What have you noticed as you've watched that coverage? And what's been your reaction to how the media has handled uh, this, these events and this issue? So <clears throat> first of all, it's great to be here with you and it's great to be here with my esteemed colleague, uh, Mark, who I just admire so much. Um, and thank you for all of your work in, in Idaho as well. We appreciate that. So I have to be very honest with you because I'm a journalist, so I deal in the truth. Um, it, last week was my daughter's graduation week. It's been two years in the making. You know, she wasn't able to have her graduation. Two years later, we were all getting together. And, and so we had to, I had to kind of make a decision. Like I'm gonna be with my family um, or I'm gonna be kind of consuming what's going on. I think all of us are feeling it very deeply. I think the country is in a state of shock and trauma and we have to kind of recognize that. Um, so I can't say, oh my God, the news has been this or the news has been that because I haven't been watching. I know what we are doing, the coverage that we are doing, which is uh, gonna drop next week. Um, and and what, we're on, what we're seeing and hearing about the city of Uvalde I don't know how much of it's been talked about, um, but it's a city that is defined by much more than this tragedy. It's a place where there was one of the longest student walkouts in American history. So we're we're going to Valde um, virtually. I'm not there. I think if it had it not been for my daughter's graduation, I would have been there. Um, so we know what we're adding. We're trying to give context and historical perspective because something like this does, doesn't just happen just like that. Um, and, and so that's kind of, I, I'm, I guess I'm, in a way I'm very blessed that I can say I, I didn't have to be watching all of it all of the time and reporting on it because I was able to make the decision to be with my family. And yet we've, we're all again, very deeply impacted by it all. Right. Well, Mark, did you you have a reaction to what you've been watching and seeing and a kind of a judgment on the the job that the media have done? Sure. Um, let me first start. Also, I do want to thank Maria and thank the uh, Humanities Council for inviting me. And I, I when I first saw it, I was hoping it was a trip to Idaho because that's always the top of the list. But um, I, I, I'd like to take this apart a little differently. And um, we really have to look at the media story on how media has reported violence since the beginning of this country. The very first ordinance um, involving guns was a 1640 statute in Virginia. And it basically said that free mulattoes, Negroes and Indians shall appear without arms. I mean, the whole idea of it being an area of division. And the next step was to make sure that families across Virginia and later the West uh, were armed so that they could, quote, protect themselves against Indians. So the idea of where this violence come from, I think, is really important. It, it's also a media story because the early media celebrated the violent American West, even when it wasn't true. There were more lawyers in the West than gunfighters. And yet, if you read the Pulp Fiction 
or later the Westerns, that's not the image you get. The other fun story is that gun control really began in the American West because there were so many towns where you could not enter a city without giving up your guns to the local sheriff as part of the entry price. In fact, there were tokens made that actually recorded whose weapons went where. And so the idea of this uh, all-encompassing Second Amendment is really new. It's not something that was part of this country's history, but the violence and the stories about the violence were very much a part. In terms of the coverage of this particular event, I think the media is starting to change a little bit. And I would compare it a bit to how we approach climate change. Early on, climate change was a 50-50 story. You'd get people on both sides and you try to weigh it out. And over the last decade, it's evolved to recognition that 85% of scientists are saying one thing and less than 15%, and that's being generous, are saying the other and to not do, treat it as an equal story. And I think you're starting to see the same thing with the proposition of any gun, any age, uh, without restriction, with the same sort of weight on how a journalist covers the story. I think the one thing, let me let me just say. Go ahead. I do think a couple of things happen in terms of the coverage. So one, in relationship to Buffalo, I think that there was a lot of critique as to why why mainstream media was not calling this a racist white supremacist attack why they were saying you know maybe racially motivated no it was a racist attack so i think that that was as mark says there's a there's a change that's happening slowly uh but it's happening you can perceive it and i think the other big big story about um uvalde is the fact that you know journalists are often we're going to believe, we're told to believe what law enforcement tells us, right? What is the official narrative of the story? Well, that's not playing out in Uvalde. There's, there's a, a, going to be a federal investigation as to exactly what happened. Right. So it, it's hard to imagine that a situation, a story like the Uvalde massacre <clears throat> could get worse, but in fact, it is getting worse. And at the center of that ugliness, is what is happening in one of the most highly policed and highly armed towns, cities, is that in, with all of the guns, it was not enough. And I think that that and, and journalists understanding that we have to question law enforcement. We cannot take what Border Patrol says as truth or the sheriffs or the police, we have got to do our jobs and question until we find the truth. Yeah, the account of that shooting changed very quickly and very dramatically. And I think that is a real startling uh, development for people to see how quickly the, the, narr the narrative changed. You both have unique perspectives uh, in covering minority communities uh, with unique media how do you do you see a difference in the way that cases of violence uh, are reported when it's largely white victims and when it comes to the victims in the minority community have you noticed a difference does that stand out to you um mark well certainly i mean you could look at just the issue of police violence i mean even in the national media when they started picking up after george floyd and reporting about um, the way police interact, uh, often act, interact with the African-American community. 
everyone in every other community knows this is a long story. It's not something that just happened recently. Uh, Native Americans have had interactions with the police. I mean, it's so ironic that to this day, we have folks that were not prosecuted involving uh, militia groups, and yet at Standing Rock, people, peaceful protesters were prosecuted. So that, that divide is really deep and one that is reflected a lot, both in media and in day-to-day uh, -day conversations. Maria. Yeah, I think that, I think part of the frustration that journalists like Mark and I have is that we have been trying to give this kind of context and, and our, our colleagues in the mainstream don't quite get it because it's something that is, this kind of violence is in fact foreign to them. I, I'm thinking, for example, of something that is, is a very New York urban, I'm in New York City now, I'm in Harlem, which I feel very safe, by the way, and it was at one point was perceived to be such a dangerous community because so many black people lived here. Well, this is one of the safest communities that, that I, I've experienced, but I remember when I, told my colleagues at NPR, this was in the 1990s, that I had called 911 in, here in New York City and I had gotten a recording. And they didn't believe it. They were like, that's not true, Maria, you're, you know. It's like, no, this happened. So part of what we've been saying is that there is a, a structural problem here. And we have to understand that that yeah, it is in fact complex and, and in, in particular in the question of, of Uvaldi, um, you know, the, the amount of violence uh, in this particular region of Texas is not new. And violence specifically against Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, people who spoke Spanish, Latinos is also not new. So uh, one more question on this topic and then we'll move on. But one of the things that I've noticed and it's a really polarizing question that we're seeing in, in, in the national press right now is this notion of showing more photos of the victims of violence. And it strikes me as unusual that we're now hearing that conversation when these victims are brown and black people. And you may not have heard a conversation about showing photos of victims when they were when they were prim primarily white victims. It, it, what do you think about this, this debate or this discussion? And Maria, let's start with you. So <clears throat> I'm reporting this story right now as we speak. Latino USA is, is preparing an hour long special. And I spoke today with Nelva Marquez Green who lost her daughter, Ana Grace um, in Sandy Hook a decade ago. And she just said, you know, you are asking of the victims so much. You want us to be, she was like, you want me to be considering that, that question now? She was like, what matters to me now is that as a nation, we are thinking about what do we do to respond to the families? What do we do? What is appropriate? What is right? What, it, what should journalists be doing? So I'm just saying what she said. She was just like, that's not, that, that's not a question that we can even when you're in that state. And she said, look, I could barely stand up. So I think we, you're right. I think that's a very, that's very observant of you to say, look, it's, it's at this point, right? When, when the victims are not white, that the question is being posed. 
Now I have to I have to be honest with you. Um, you know, and I I would love to hear what Mark has to say about this because I do think that it, one I don't think we should be asking this of the families right now. Certainly not. That is not the conversation to be having. But um, there's something that I lived through as a young person, which was the, the Vietnam War, and this was the first televised war. And so for journalists, we had incredible access. You remember this, you know, journalists were on the front lines. We were, journalists were covering the body bags arriving on a daily basis. They were being seen coming off the planes. We all saw this. I remember, you know, I guess Morley Safer and Dan Rather with, you know, helmets right there in the front and seeing soldiers, you know, bloodied and, and there was a reality to that war that I think had everything to do with people saying it has to stop. Seeing it, yeah. And and in Iraq, as you know, that was not. We were the the images of body bags censored. We could not see the planes arriving with the injured, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there is a horror that is upon this country, and it is rooted in a kind of violence that we still have a problem recognizing. Yeah. And certainly, Mark knows all about the kind of violence that has been exacted upon, you know, and, and from our so-called founding fathers. Well, and we have a history of, uh, you know, kind of displaying the bodies of Indians that were killed back in the day. Um, so, Mark, what are your thoughts on this kind of debate that's going on right now? Well, and I agree with uh, Maria. I, mean, I, I think we always have to be really careful about being accurate and truthful, and at the same time, not making grief uh, public entertainment. And um, I think that's really important to talk through. I think the families have an issue of sovereignty over their own story. And sometimes we just have to back off and let it play out. And really, when you think about it, the rush and the 10 minute media world, um, first of all, this story shows how even with all our fancy technology, a picture is still one of the most compelling things there is. And a still image directs your eyes in a way that video can't. And um, so it's really a powerful medium and we have to be cognizant of that as we tell the story. Um, I, I think the lessons here, and I do think there is a moment where folks are so outraged and this also happened with George Floyd. So it's building on one thing or another that it's saying, we just can't keep doing it this way. And there's gotta be a better route. And that's starting to get into areas of conversation that I don't think were taking place two years ago uh, when George Floyd was killed, murdered. Interesting. So the, you know, the topic of tonight's conversation is you know, why the public views the media as polarizing. So I guess I would you know, ask you as our panelists, do you think that the public does view the press as polarizing and if it's deserved or not. And why don't we start with you, Mark? Well, I guess I'd start by saying what, what public? <laughs> we have been looking at, uh, in 1947, and I always go backwards, in 1947, a distinguished commission looked at freedom of the press. And um, they, one of their questions was, if we can't cover constituent groups, and by that they meant race, in a really thoughtful, comprehensive, intelligent way, democracy itself would be at risk. And since 1947, you're really seeing the phrase of that. So much of the media missed out on its opportunity to diversify and bring people in, and that includes readership. If, um, I mean, one of the great lessons I hear from our reporters all the time is I love working in a place where I don't have to tell my editors why it's a story. 
And um, that's just something that's missing from mainstream media because they did not do it really when they had the opportunity to do it. And I think that played out then with readers and it played out with uh, uh, basically their social license to operate. You know, the other thing that occurs to me, and I think you mentioned this when we spoke earlier, is the reaction that you, you said, who, what public are we talking about? You could also say, what media are we talking about? I think your your point, and I think uh, Maria would would agree with this, is your readership has a different relationship with your with your feed, with your services, with your with your news than CBS or NPR or Fox News, right? Oh, absolutely. I don't have a day go by where somebody doesn't thank me for what I do, and that it's really heartfelt. My favorite is when someone is for a nonprofit news organization like Maria. And my favorite is when you get a, a money order from Pine Ridge, South Dakota for $35. And it, not only is it the amount of money, but it's that somebody took the time to stand in line at the post office. And I think that connection with readers shows how deep our relationship is. Well, I think we're going to be talking about kind of uh, uh, alternative media and the future. So I think we'll return to this topic. But I want to ask you, Maria, the same question. You know, are the media polarizing? And is that is that deserved? It's hard to make a generalization because, you know, I consider my founding father in the media, Frederick Douglass. And he was probably considered a polarizing figure at that time because he was telling the truth of what it was to be a formerly enslaved black man in the United States. I, I believe what he was doing was he was capturing the honesty of what this country looks like. But part of what Mark and I have been talking about for the entirety of our careers has been representation in our newsrooms. And the reason why we talk about that is not just because it's fun, it's actually because if you are not at this point, this is what this is the way I approach it, Bill. And I know that this makes my colleagues, it makes their hair stand up on end, but this is why I do it. Some people's hair. You're sweet. <laughs> um, I like to say, if your newsroom is not at all representative, does not even come close to representative, then there's no way that you're able to practice excellence in journalism in the United States of America. So we're not at the same level. My newsroom is more representative than your newsroom is. I'm already practicing excellence in journalism. You've got to reach up, you've got to come to where I'm at to begin to have a conversation about excellence in journalism. And we need to recognize that's a very complex question. That this is what we could talk about the entire hour, right? Which is, well, why? Well, because if you're controlling the message, you're controlling the narrative. And so, you know, on the one hand, like I think of Walter Cronkite, who is also like one of the fathers of American journalism, who I love. I'll critique Walter Cronkite. I worked for Walter Cronkite. I wrote for Walter Cronkite. And he read what I wrote for him without pause. And yet, you know, of course, he was allowed to show his emotions without critique. And and I've always said, but we all can't see the world through Walter Cronkite's eyes, nor should we. So part of what's happened, I think, and it's um, in Spanish, agudizado, it's intensified over the last, uh, well, since, the, since 2015, I would say, with the, the, the candidacy of Donald Trump, is that 
you know, this like the, the both sides of things. Uh, you had mainstream media that had no problem repeating over and over and over and over again hate speech towards Mexicans, writ large Latinos and Latinas uh, immigrants. Uh, and and didn't and didn't categorize it as such. So so you have people who begin to question what what is happening in terms of our mainstream media. Uh, why are they doing this? Because there is deep damage that is done. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because Mark, like I, like you, Bill, we are committed to saving American journalism, right? We have to. Um, so I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We do need to be having is these kinds of conversations on a national level that are pushing our colleagues, frankly, to do better. And that may mean that they're not going to be in power all the time. And that's part of our reality, right? Is that the United States is changing and how do we deal with really deep power shift? Uh, and, and part of that comes, I'll just say this and I'll end, you know, in our newsroom, in Futuro Media, you will never hear the word minority ever to describe what the Latino and Latina community is or the black community is or the indigenous community. We do not use the term minority. And, and think about the fact that, you know, later the, if we had data that showed, in fact, much of uh, uh, white America was, it wasn't an economic argument. They were concerned about losing their place and becoming a minority and treated like one. And that this fear, which Donald Trump was stoking and is stoking, is what led to, to his election. And, and the media's relationship to how to cover that person, I think, is very problematic because uh, we are, our democracy is in peril. Uh, we were in a state of authoritarianism um, and, and the media, our, our colleagues were, you know, having a hard time kind of recognizing the severity of it, still do. You're talking about when the media reported, you know, that statement that Mexicans are criminals and rapists and they're, and they're invading into the country. That's the, that's from Correct. the very beginning of that campaign that's what you're talking about and that was correct repeated and covered correct because awesome. it's uh, right because it's also untrue um i mean we it, it's just it's 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 a, a it's a it's a lie in fact uh, we know this if you want to just look at it statistically so uh, I, I hate to do this because i don't we don't want to get into oppression olympics you know but what would happen if you replace uh mexicans with any other uh, group and would would the mainstream media have been so easy to repeat it? Right. So while we're sort of on this theme, there's a question that has come in from a, a viewer who said, "Do you think that white journalists are inhibited in Uvalde reporting because law enforcement is led by Hispanics and the shooter had a Hispanic name? And should those reporters step aside so that so that they aren't conflicted about how to report uh, from Texas?" No, I, I, I think that I think that I don't want journalists to be stepping aside. I need them to step up. We need them to step up. We need them to be responsible. We need them to be well-trained. We need them to have sensitivity, to understand context, to understand where they are in a place like Uvalde or in Buffalo, 
it, to, to have an awareness. That's what we want. I don't, I don't want journalists. Um, I mean, if they're belligerent and lying, then they're not journalists. So I would want them to step, to step back. But no, we need people who are, um, who are bringing their full selves into reporting this story, frankly. Mark, any additional thoughts on that question? I completely agree with that. It takes a lot of voices to make a strong choir. <laughs> well said. And I like your, I like that 10 minute media, the 10 minute media world. I'm going to remember that one too. That uh, you have both, you've both worked for mainstream media. Mark, you've worked for newspapers in Seattle. In fact, here in Idaho and Maria, you've worked for CNN and CBS. You wrote for Walter Cronkite and uh, NPR and uh, so you both you both started out your careers in the traditional media world, and now you're not there. You've gone you've gone to a different place. So can you talk about how you ended up leaving that world, and why? And let's start with you, Mark. Well, in my case, it was pretty easy. The Seattle Post Intelligencer disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do think, and I think I'm and a lot of folks were really diligent starting in about 1970, trying to work at coming up with strategies for making the media more diverse. And we worked really hard at it. I can't tell you how many committees I was on. And we just generally failed. And as the newspaper industry and then later television started to collapse economically, it just got worse. And um, I think the biggest mistake in the media, frankly, is to forget that growth matters. And one of the things that is probably our strongest suit as an independent nonprofit is that we're always growing and looking for ways to build our audience and to find new people. And that's just a lesson that really didn't happen with the media. The people who are running companies decided the easiest way to be profitable was to cut budgets and cut numbers of people and to shrink. And I think shrink is a terrible metaphor for media. First of all, I just have to thank you, Bill, for bringing me and Mark together because I, I just just, you know, Mark and I could not be more different. And yet we are like brother and sister from, you know, from Frederick Douglass and and descendants of so many storytellers and and documenters. Um, so, yeah, um, I forgot the question. <laughs> so so why you why you oh why did why i do this so, kind of traditional media and ended up where you are yeah and, and well and why well um it's uh I, I like telling this story um it's in my book once i was you uh, you know i now on pbs the favorite place where i worked on television doing documentary um 60 minute style um work is shut down in 2010 um Barack Obama was elected and it was kind of felt like, well, you know, we don't have to challenge the government anymore. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so now on PBS went away. And I, um, at that point I was only the anchor of Latino USA. It was not a, a full-time job. And, um, and I was hoping to get a job with 60 minutes and I went to have an interview with them. And I was, it was like my, my, just the thought that I could get hired just having an interview with them. I didn't get the hint that the interview took place at a Starbucks, so I should have kind of <laughs> like read the room a little bit more. Um, and, and, you know, this very senior person says, oh, my God, you know, you're perfect for us. You have all the qualifications. It's just that can you wait until one of these old white guys gets sick or dies? 
And I was like, is this a joke? Am I laughing? Are you, is this serious? What are you telling me? To, like, what? And, uh, and then I got in the subway and I cried all the way home to 125th Street. And, and I couldn't, the thought of calling me papa uh, and telling him that I had to go on unemployment, you know, I, I just very Mexican of me, very immigrant of me. I could not, could not think of that. And I, you know, I was a woman now who had several decades of being a journalist. And I think I was known for having a kind of perspective, a kind of journalism. And as Mark says, I didn't want to have to go back into other newsrooms and explain myself and ask for permission to do stories that I knew were valuable. And so I just jumped off the deep end. It was just like, you know, Mark was forced because, you know, the paper cut was shut down and my program, my television show was shut down. And and I'm so glad I did because I, I really, I had no idea what I was doing. I'm a journalist. I'm not, uh, I wasn't at that point a media entrepreneur. Now, absolutely. I'm a media entrepreneur. I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm a, and Mark is exactly right. What Mark and I continue to see is there is so much hunger for our work. And so we are all about growth. Right now, Futuro Media, you know, we're having to manage to not grow too fast because we don't want that problem, right? We don't want that. But we are all about seizing this opportunity and building on that growth. And that's our audience is just coming to us. And you're right, Mark, not a day goes by when <clears throat> we don't get thanked for the work that we do. What I mean, that's such a beautiful thing that we have that. So you you both yeah. ended up, go ahead, Mark. Oh, I just wanted to build on that a bit. One of the things that Marie and I both have heard all our careers is we can't find anybody. We would hire somebody, but, and uh, what I really love about my job now is being able to put that on its head forever, because um, when we have resources, we hire people. <laughs> it's not that complicated. And we've gone from three employees to 30 in less than three years. And our plan now is to double again uh, to 60 employees. And that opportunity, building opportunity is what's really this is all about. The other thing I want to mention, I also know this is true with Maria's organization, is our demographics, our uh, top readership group is 25 to 34. And that's just not something you see in the media. I mean, not only are we reaching readers in greater numbers, but we're reaching young people. And I think that's really uh, probably the most important thing we do. So let's talk a little bit about kind of you know, the, the necessity or the opportunity of being media entrepreneurs, uh, whether it's desperation and survival or opportunity. Uh, Mark, when you went to Indian country today, uh, you basically reinvented that, that uh, medium. Talk about what you did and how you did it. Sure. I, I should start by saying after the Seattle PI died, I thought I was going to um, stay in, in academic circles for a while. I'd gone to the University of Anchorage, Alaska, and then University of North Dakota. And teaching was fun. I enjoyed it. Indian country today, when it went out of business and they asked me to take it back, was just such a great opportunity uh, because I knew that it had a national audience that was unparalleled. And um, one of the first things we did is you think about where people consume media and so in a newspaper world, everyone's trying to protect newspapers instead of asking the question, how do you reach people with content that matters with news stories? And so if you answer that question, the only answer is the mobile phone. 
So we entirely built everything based on the mobile phone. And today, 85% of our readership every single day is on a mobile device. And I think that shows where the audience is. In fact, there was a stat I love from a demographic study. And it said, millennials will look at their phone before they say good morning to their partner. Wow. And if you can't build a business on that, you have no, <laughs> no savvy at all. And maybe you should add marriage counseling to your uh, suite of offerings, Mark. <laughs> right. But you, you, do you publish, uh, do you publish a print edition anymore? No, we um, will do special issue books, but they're all print on demand. So we don't even sell the book until somebody buys it. <laughs> and you essentially created a, a, a TV broadcast as well as, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, that was a real surprise. I certainly didn't expect to be in the television business. Uh, in 2018, we knew there was going to be an extraordinary election. Uh, I had been blogging before I went to Indian Country Today about politics, and I knew that it was the first election where more women than men were running in, from Indian Country, and there were more than 115 candidates, and that we were going to elect the first Native American woman to Congress uh, in the entire history of the country. And so we wanted to do a broadcast to that effect, and five weeks before the election, so we did a lot of planning. Um, we started calling around and um, a station in Southern California, FNX, which is a cable, uh, PBS uh, cable station, said, why don't you come and do a, a broadcast election night? And we did. And we did five hours of programming. It was fabulous. We learned a lot. Next morning, the entire staff that we put together said, can we do this again? Huh. And um, I just happened to have a meeting at Arizona State that week and said, we'd like to do a daily TV show. And the dean said, you know, I don't think you can afford a daily, but why don't you come here and do a weekly? <laughs> so we started planning for a weekly and we were gonna do a magazine and then the pandemic hit. And the great, I mean, I don't wanna make light of the pandemic, but it afforded an opportunity to do things in a different way. We started a newscast out of somebody's living room on Zoom and every day we started doing it. And then we started to think about how to improve the production and now three years later, the production looks really good. We're in a studio. We're doing things that we need to do. Uh, you mentioned the PBS system. Just in July, we are going to be on the PBS World Channel, which is 80% of the PBS network. So it really gives us a national presence there. And um, one of the reasons I have such an odd title as editor-at-large is I really wanted this platform to be built for the long term. So I decided this year to turn over the editor job to a younger person and the anchor job to a younger person and really to think about how are we gonna make this something that lasts. And um, that's been, we've been very deliberate about that as well. So you went into this hoping to kind of save a dinosaur. Instead, you rebirthed a whole new creature. It's completely different. Yeah, our first budget when I took over was 300,000. And this year our budget's 5.4 million. Wow. So it's really amazing. So Maria, you 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 had to create an entire company from scratch. And uh, have you thought about offering marriage counseling as part of your suite of products? No, let me just tell you that uh, the first person that I physically thanked when I won the Pulitzer was to walk next door to my husband's studio. He's the artist. And thank him um, because you know, this, this, to be a partner of somebody who does this work is not easy. Um, and so I don't do marriage counseling, but I do write about it a lot. 
in my book. I think people um, who've read your book uh, get, a, get a deep appreciation for your husband. Yeah, he's a pretty extraordinary human being. Um, you, had to, you, you, you had to start a, a, a media company from scratch. Yeah. And here's an important message. I really didn't think I could do it or knew exactly what I was doing. I, of course, I ended up working with people. So I just want to encourage people, because hey, I said it about myself. I was like, I could never, I could never have my own company. I could never do that. I could never run. And actually, we are more capable of things than we imagine. And I think that that Mark and I have that, like, that's why we love hiring people to come and work with us because we're able to see what they're not able to see, right? They're, they may not believe in what they can do, but we're able to be, wow, no, you got this. We got this. So Futuro right now, which as you know, is a little bit of a darling uh, in the media world. And I would say the same with Mark, right? Uh, with ICT is that uh, it, we continue to just do the work. That's very important. Like for us, it's to stay focused on doing the work of journalism. And that is, and, and I think that again, with Mark and with myself, like we, we, I mean, right now, Futuro is 12 years old. We're getting all this recognition. We win the Pulitzer, we win there. There were many years where we were just kind of toiling and having to fight. Uh, we still fight for everything, but um, yeah. So I want young journalists in particular and not young journalists either, all journalists, to kind of understand the, the profoundness of the mission that we have. And the conversation here is how, how do we in fact move beyond being polarizing? How do we learn? How do we have these conversations? And I think that's why winning the Pulitzer for Suave where the, the central relationship between a journalist and a source was really laid bare. Like this is what it looks like. And that the Pulitzers would say, we wanna recognize that work. I think that's, an interesting moment in kind of journalism history in this moment where we're ever able to have these conversations, these dialogues, because Mark and I were doing this work, uh, you know, 15 years ago, 25 years ago. So it's, it's a very dynamic conversation that we're able to be a part of. And, and frankly, as Mark says, also, it's about you, the person who's watching this and how you engage with us. That's deeply important to us. You know, one, one of the things you ended up doing with your media company is launching that podcast that is that has just in may won you the the pulitzer so uh we can't let this moment pass by without at least talking about that and uh tell us what it was like to find out that news i think if people who don't follow you on twitter might not know exactly how you reacted but how was what was that like learning and, and, and receiving that news well here's the thing <clears throat> i i didn't I didn't even know that we had submitted for a Pulitzer. I know people are like, how did you not know? And I'm like, well, I got a lot of stuff going on. You know, I knew, I knew that we were not nominated for a Peabody and I was like, okay, but we won an International Documentary Association Award. I was good. So I wasn't even thinking about the Pulitzers. And many of our colleagues are watching the live feed for the Pulitzer announcements, the nominate, they're like watching this. And I was busy doing work. So yeah, my, I found out because my phone started blowing up in a way that I had never seen it before. 
And, um, and then, yeah, you're right. If you saw me on Twitter or on Instagram, it was, uh, you know, a heartfelt reaction. A lot of people kind of went a little viral. Um, and it's just kind of extraordinary because, so people understand I met Suave in 1993. Uh, that's when we began a source journalist relationship that included also sending him Christmas cards every year, because as I said, I knew what his address was. I knew where he was going to be. Well, he was in prison. We haven't told our viewers. Every year. Yet, right? Oh my God, he was we in prison. Him. He was in prison for life as a, as a juvenile. And you met him by happenstance and developed a friendship with him that turned into this uh, uh, confessional almost. Yeah, well, we were recording conversations for about 25 years. Um, and now, uh, now we're, it was just announced yesterday, we did get funding actually from the Mellon Foundation. So bravo to the Mellon Foundation. Um, they just funded us for season two of Suave. And, and we're actually taking it to the next level because Suave, who the story is about his life, 31 years behind bars, then gets released, um, learns how to read, write, gets his GED and his college degree. Uh, and now he's actually one of our producers. So he is one of the producers of the season two. He will not just be a subject, but he's saying, here are the stories that I think we should be focused on. So it's a very exciting moment for us and for the conversation of journalism and how we do things differently when we're run in a different way. You know, one of the things that one of the things that some people find polarizing about media are when opinions are injected into what it would be traditional news coverage, but both of you uh, have experience with opinion in your reporting. Maria, you talk about, you know, leading with your heart and making your humanity part of your reportage. And Mark, you've been writing editorials and columns for years and years. Talk about, talk about the role of opinion versus straight journalism and why you choose to do the journalism you do. <laughs> well, not to be trite, but I think objective journalism is a great idea and we should try it sometime. Um, everybody has opinions that they bring into it. If a meeting, let's just take a meeting, for example, was objective, a five-hour meeting would be a five-hour report. We're always choosing what to put into a story. We're always choosing uh, what is important. And the best we can do, and this is something that I hope shows up, whether it's an opinion column or a news story, is to be fair. And I think that's a higher standard and one that's worth really working hard to try to reach at. And I also think um, so often the objective journalism that we were raised with um, misses on context. And if you're out of sorts on context, the story is not accurate nor fair. And <laughs> I think those are two standards we should get to. I have a lesson from Idaho. When I was, uh, a teenager and I was editing the Showband News, I wrote a column about somebody, a story that involved uh, Power County. And one of the commissioners was really mad and he came down the next morning and I remember making him coffee and we had a great conversation. And I always thought one of the standards of journalism ought to be have a cup of coffee with the person you're writing about and be able to explain yourself in a way that makes some sense and to hear their side of it too. The story doesn't have to be over just because you've written it. It continues on, it can evolve, and it can still get better, and it can still get more fair. I think one of the lessons 
that I've certainly learned is you, it's hard to demonize and objectify somebody you know as a person, somebody you have coffee with and appreciate as a person. Uh, Maria, you, you talked about, you know, humanity is one of the tools that you have, that we have in our tool belt as journalists. Talk about why you believe that. I, I love, well, first of all, again, I was raised watching a generation, mostly CBS, actually CBS News, uh, greatly impacted by someone like Ed Bradley, you know, the first black correspondent on 60 Minutes. Uh, and you could tell that Ed had heart. Ed, Ed, Ed had heart, like heart, but he also had street heart. Um, and I remember that he would bring that they allowed they allowed him to kind of show that. And, you know, I remember Walter Cronkite, right? Crying, tearing up, uh, also his, his rage around the Vietnam War. And then I worked with Scott Simon, you know, one of the premier journalists of NPR. And I saw how Scott was, yeah, he would get physically close, touch, touch people. people. He would touch people. He still does. I mean, appropriately. Eh, and I just said, wait a second, you know, I, I too can do this. And also I think in, in Latin America, the Mexican tradition of journalism, that's also something that you see. And so, um, I mean, in the case of Suave, it just won the Pulitzer, you know, I had people who I knew who were close to me, family members who had been behind bars. So people behind bars were not just a number or a horrible story. It was, I had been to prisons in Latin America. This was and I wanted to, I wanted to humanize this. Now, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've been attempting to do this even when I was interviewing uh, white supremacists in the early 1990s for NPR. Uh, and it was something that it's like, I think me being the other in this country always uh, allowed me to want to understand the other. And I'm not saying that you can do this at all times, but I am saying it is a tool that we have and we have to learn how to use that tool appropriately as opposed to being so removed where nothing touches us. Uh, then, then I think that's dangerous. So uh, we have a viewer who asked this question. Um, as a semi-retired public radio producer and new podcaster, who has worked on cultural humanities projects with the Idaho tribes for more than 30 years, how do you confront the insanity around what Idahoans and others are calling critical race theory? This person says it's simply institutional racism to me, but I mean, you both are having to confront race, you know, front and center in the work you do. So maybe you could talk about that as well as this kind of larger debate we're having over critical race theory. And Mark, why don't we go with you first? Okay. Well, just the problem is pretty, it's pretty hard to argue with a slogan. Uh, if you can start to break it down and what do you mean by critical race theory? What specifically? And then start to look at the history. And I think so much of this is documentable that you can show what happened, when it happened, why it happened, and these forces that are out there that are really important to understand and put that in, I mean, it's interesting that in some of the states that are really hardest on what they consider critical race theory are the states losing teachers the fastest. And that ought to be a clue about states competitiveness, the state's ability to be in the marketplace of ideas. Both of those are at risk because of a slogan. 
I do want to remind our viewers that uh, they can ask questions by punching the Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom screen there. Uh, Maria, same question to you. So I, I remember being asked when I was a correspondent at NPR in the 1990s to do a mini documentary to understand what was considered the threat of multiculturalism. <laughs> remember that when everybody was like oh my god multiculturalism oh my god it's going to destroy america uh, I, you know they're taking over they want to they want to talk about i just remember it and, and at npr i had to fight with editors because they thought that i had a bone in the business because i was mexican i was an immigrant and how else could i be objective and just how many people's hair was on fire over something called multiculturalism, which is now such an archaic term. It's like, what? So you're right. Uh, the question is, what are we talking about? To me, um, and Mark actually is our greatest teacher, right? Because our founding fathers and founding mothers of this land really are our first peoples our indigenous people, they are our founding fathers and founding mothers. The fact that we <clears throat> can say something which is factual, right? If the original sin was slavery, the first sin was genocide. That is, that is part of our, our country's history, that the first laws to exclude people, not laws that that recognized people's half humanity, but laws that excluded people by law. We know this. It was the so-called Page Act to exclude Asian Chinese women first, and then the Chinese Exclusion Act. This is, this is who we are, that, that in the 1930s, there was what the history books called the Great Repatriation. ¿Qué es eso? It was when the great massive deportation of Mexicans and American citizens of Mexican descent in the 1930s, or something that is called the Japanese internment. It's like, why do we even call it that? That's so inappropriate. They were not Japanese. They were American citizens of Japanese descent and they were not interred. What is that? They were imprisoned, held, <laughs> a, frankly, against their will. And so the fact that people should be um, upset that we want to speak these truths, eh, what does that say about who we are? Because, again, it's, as, as I agree with Mark, it's hard to argue with a, 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 you know, this term because it's like, what are you talking about? To me, it's like, can we just talk about the empirical reality of this country and understand that the history books that have been written have been written with a perspective. And yes, with calling themselves objective when they are not. I would just add one thing to that. And that it's really important to remember that the history of North America is at least 20,000 years. And to think about the last 250 as the defining moment is missing part of the point. One of the fun stories that I just love is when the Pueblos invented the internet. And um, if you go back a thousand years, um, the ancient Pueblos in the Southwest had these road systems that were precise and accurate and they could communicate village to village. And the way they did that was light on, light off. 
one comma zero. So some of these techniques have been around forever. It's just that because we are so focused on a 250 year history, we miss the breadth of the experience. Maria, I know uh, you had mentioned uh, your reaction to this, the replacement theory that uh, has been out there now as uh, an issue. And I think you said you're not interested in replacing anybody. So talk about that. It makes me it makes me so sad, and I think it goes to the heart of our conversation around the media, right? Um, Samuel Huntington from Harvard wrote a book called oh, "What Is It?" called "Who Are We?" Uh, and he basically was saying, um, you know, uh, these immigrants, these Mexican immigrants, they're coming. They want to take over, and they want to make everybody speak Spanish. They want to destroy American culture. And when I interviewed him. Samuel Huntington, and I asked him, Professor Huntington, how many immigrants do you know? And he was like, uh, what? It's like, well, how many do you hang out with? And he was like, I, what? you know, I'm like, because I'm with immigrants every day and I've never heard any immigrant ever say, we're coming here to replace you. We're coming here to take over. We're coming here to change you. And frankly, Samuel Huntington had to basically, I had to say, so you've never actually heard any immigrant ever say that. And he said, it's true, I haven't. So <clears throat> I like to say now, we don't wanna come to replace you. We wanna hang out with you. We wanna party with you. We wanna break bread with you. We wanna make love with you. We wanna have families with you. We wanna employ you. We want to work with you. We want to go to school with you, replace you. Guess eso? That just that thought doesn't enter into my mind. And and I like Mark. When I got this invitation, I was like, Oh my god, I get to go to <clears throat> I get to go back to Idaho. My God, one of my favorite states, right? Because I I've been to all. I don't not all of them are my favorite, but Idaho is up there. And you know, Idaho's fastest growing demographic is Latino and Latina. And the people of Idaho that I've met, you know, the ones who are just like, hey, what's up? Hey, how you doing? You know, waving at everybody every morning, like, you know, in Coeur d'Alene, just, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. Good morning. Those are the people that need to understand that there's no replacement happening, that Idaho and the United States is big enough for all of us. And frankly, as Mark says, eh, we've been here since the beginning, too. We've been here since the beginning. And one day I can't wait to be back in Idaho. One day in person. Well, maybe we'll all do this in person next time we gather together. Um, so, so what is happening with uh, our our media when uh, you have to create special mediums in order to cover these issues. And I, you know, for lack of a better term, Maria, minority communities, communities that are not served by traditional media. What does that tell us about the functioning and the success of, of, of the media today, Mark? Well, I mean, the media is in a tough shape and it's partly its own doing. Um, I think the late Al Newharth probably um, save some newspapers by partnering with Wall Street, but he's also seeing the demise of a lot of newspapers because of partnering with Wall Street and the demand for capital. When a family's owned newspapers, it was fine to have a 10 or 12% profit margin. 
And for a long time, newspapers were 50, 60, 70% profit margins. They got purchased by large capital funds that want that again. And it's just not going to happen. Uh, I think that's one of the stories that's true, both with Futura Media and ours, is the rise of nonprofits. And the reason that news as a nonprofit makes so much sense is because we can be about service. We're not interested in making money. We're interested in serving people with really good journalism and giving that back to the community. When we raise more money, for example, at ICT, we just hire more people. I mean, it really is a circular thing rather than about uh, entities. I also think that um, part of the problem is the media is a very conservative entity. And by that, I mean, um, innovation kind of got lost. If you look at William Randolph Hearst and when he was a publisher in San Francisco, he was a total innovator. He took wires, he took things. He wanted newspapers to have several editions a day. He was willing to experiment. And if it didn't work, he moved on to something else. Somewhere along the line, news organizations became very staid and didn't want to do any of that. They wanted to keep doing it the way they've always done it. And the problem is readership changes. People's tastes change. People want information differently. The internet should have been the greatest advantage ever. Instead, folks ran away from it and didn't know how to deal with it rather than using it as a tool of innovation. Maria, we've talked a little around this, but is there is there something that happened that forced folks like you to have to create your own media in order to serve your readers? Well, you know, where did where did the traditional media fail? Well, you know, I I've always said, you know, you're you, my editor, there is gonna say that this is a Latino story. It's like, it's not a Latino story, it's an American story. Um, and I think that's part of the failure is that, that there's this understanding that somehow, you know, if it didn't touch us, if, if it didn't matter to us, then it wasn't um, a story. Um, and I think this is, this is part of what's, you know, what's been wrong, right? Is that when you don't have a representative media you're, you're having to go, I mean, look, all journalists were incredibly competitive, right? And we're going to want to do the best stories possible, but to have to come into a newsroom and basically have to be fighting, fighting uh, to be taken seriously, um, I think is, is exhausting. And as Mark said, your readership is changing. I mean, uh, to me, I think that people may have seen me as, you know, a bit of a nudge or she's always complaining, but actually as Mark you know, I would say Mark and I are just actually really savvy business people and media entrepreneurs because we were just looking at the data. In terms of Latinos and Latinas, it is a demographic group that has been growing steadily since the 1980s. So when I left CNN, right, I was telling them because I, I left essentially because they were like, well, between you and Lou Dobbs, we like Lou Dobbs. And I kept saying to them, you're choosing Lou Dobbs, but look at the demographics, right? That's not what the, that, that Lou Dobbs is not going to be the future demographic that you want. It's going to be this demographic. And if you look at CNN right now, you know, they're suffering. And I think in part, it's because like all cable news networks, by the way, they are not representative. They're not doing a good enough job. So ultimately you need to kind of, again, read the room, see who is there consuming media. And specifically Latinos and Latinas who are so digitally connected, 
the fact that you would let that audience go, um, it's a disservice to, to journalism. I mean, I, I, I call myself a democracy junkie. And if you think about the Latino and Latina population growth and what, you know, half total, half of the total population growth in the last census came from Latinos and Latinas. Born here, not immigrants. Uh, the medium age of Latinos and Latinas is about 11 now. Uh, they're the second largest uh, voting cohort group. We don't vote as a block, but white folks, Latinos, African-Americans. So the, the future of democracy really is in the hands of Latinos and Latinas as voters. And yet you don't see them being talked about in any national mainstream kind of consistently as like, wow, this powerful group of voters, now we need to make sure that they understand that they're being talked about, that they're being talked to, that the issues that matter to them actually matter to us. And so, you know, my hair goes on fire because uh, I'm just thinking about democracy. And that I think with both Mark and I also, it's the mission of journalism, but also I think we're, we're deeply committed to democracy and to our role as journalists in in, in pushing democracy. And I don't think that's an agenda necessarily. I've heard uh, you, Maria, specifically talk about the view that Latinos are not monolithic. And I'm sure the same, you and Mark, you would say the same about, you know, indigenous people. So how do you, so how do you balance the, my, this group is not monolithic and yet I have to serve them all. Um, and let's start with you, Maria. You know, when we say Latinos are not monolithic, uh, that's sort of a truism, but then you have to figure out how to serve a, a diverse audience that is not necessarily going to be agree with you or your coverage. Yeah. Look, I think as journalists, we're always going to be pushing for more. Um, so I, I'm deeply satisfied with the work that Latino USA has done over the last 30 years to capture the complexity of the Latino Latina population in the United States. But I think we have to do, and I've told my team, we have to do better in terms of understanding uh, the, the rise of conservatism among Latinos and Latinas. This is very real. And it has been something that we've been covering, but you know, the evangelical church uh, the growth of the evangelical church, how, how this happened, uh, the receptiveness uh, of these communities, um, the whole conversation around disinformation, uh, very specifically targeted at Latinos and Latinas in Spanish. It, <clears throat> so um, to me, we, we need to understand this complexity and report on it on a daily because no, it's not a block at all. But are am I surprised by the amount of support that Donald Trump got as a candidate or as a president from Latinos and Latinas? Not terribly surprised. And and here's the thing <clears throat> that can grow. That 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 is where the, the particularities of the Latino Latina voter. <clears throat> and we, again, I'm asking my team that we have to do better. Uh, I'll just give you an example. One thing that was surprising to me in the election of Donald Trump was um, 
how Latinos and Latinas vote on the issue of uh, uh, anti-abortion. Right. Uh, it's a much larger part of the uh, electoral conversation than, than I think uh, we were pre prepared to have. So that's just an example. So it's recognizing the nuances and not stereotyping, which is something we should be doing as journalists anyway. And it seems that we kind of forget that when we start talking about uh, these communities and we need to remember that. And I assume, Mark, how do you, do you have the same experience as with, with, with your readership, with your audience that uh, Maria just discussed? Sure. I, I, well, first of all, I treasure complexity. So I'm glad Maria keeps using that word because I think it's really important that uh, we have to be able to understand really complex issues and groups and how they see those. I'll just use an example of climate change. On one hand, we have folks that want to continue with energy and uh, as it's been practiced for the last 40 years. And in some tribes, in Wyoming, for example, uh, the, the tribal members get per capita. So there's a real distinct reason for continuing with that. I talked to the chairman at Wyoming uh, Arapaho just the other day, and he said, but even they recognize that the numbers are dwindling and things are changing. On the other hand, then you have groups who understand the complexities of how do you get to a next economy with the government, which is, or with the planet. And that's a whole different set of people. And then there's people that want to leave energy in the ground right now. And all those three groups have very different outcomes and processes to get to those outcomes. Yet each one has something to contribute to it. So being able to pull it apart and ask and find out and explore each of those themes, I think is really important. It's almost something as basic as you know respecting the intelligence of your audience and not assuming that that you know more or that they that they don't care or aren't interested. Um, we did have you mentioned Mark that uh, your audience is younger, and so we have a question about you know how do you guys view the different generations using your media and are you seeing a difference and how you know how do you think about um, serving a younger younger audience or attracting a younger audience. Why don't we start with you, Mark? I think one, I mean, we always look at what's new in the world. And one way that social media has changed the world forever is that a young person today is going to meet people from all over the world and have them be their friend forever. And in my day, when I was young, I might meet somebody at a conference. We might drop the letter once a year or two. We might pick up the phone and talk to each other but these young people are connected forever. And that's a really dramatic shift. And it means borders matter less. Uh, people are traveling all over the world uh, digitally every day. Um, I have as much interest from readers in Greenland as I do what's going on um, in Oklahoma. And I think that really is extraordinary. And it's something that's new to this generation and exciting. Is it, is it young people who are consuming you on mobile or is it across the generations? It's across the generation, uh, surprisingly. Uh, our demographics hold up pretty much across the board. Uh, we go from 30, 25 to 34 is first, 34 uh, to 54 is second. And then um, it drops down to the younger group. And then finally the 55 plus starts to pick up. Uh, what's really interesting to me, and since I've been writing about economics, I'm the only one on the staff where more people read me on a desktop than they do on a mobile. And I don't know if I'm in great trouble because of that. <laughs> Maybe it's that gray hair. You know, right. newspapers chased young readers for, for decades and 
uh, didn't have much success and sounds like you've, you've maybe, maybe uh, cracked that nut a little bit. As, as Maria, I mean, her demographics are very similar. So Maria, talk about that. You know, one of the things that I would say in terms of Latino USA, for example, is that we've, it's a very organic, it's a very organic show. It has not stayed the same. It has not been static. And I was talking about this with my team because some people freak out about it. It's like, no, well, what is it? You know, and it's like, actually, it's okay that it has been changing because the population of Latinos and Latinas in the United States over the 30 years that we've been on the air has been changing. And so um, I always encourage, right? The whole idea of our newsroom is bring your full self into the newsroom, bring those ideas into the newsroom. So I'm just gonna hold up, for example, one of our recent um, pieces that is not serious. I mean, it is serious, but it's like in the world of seriousness, um, our two fellows, so not even staff members, right? They're fellows because we like to have fellows who are with us for a while, who get a salary eh, and they can work with us. And so our two distinguished fellows ended up doing an hour long documentary about what we call chisme, which is essentially gossip. But it was a, a look that was a little bit more culturally historical understanding. What is the essence of chisme and do Latinos and Latinas, do you, how do we use chisme? Eh, such a beautiful piece, lighthearted. We had an academic who has studied the history of cheese and women in Latin America. I mean, beautiful. And this was done by young people who uh, the word cheese set off something that they understood that they had a cultural relationship and we were like, go for it. So how do we keep the audience young is because we're actually listening to our producers who, when they come in and they have what some people might say, well, that's a totally crazy idea. How are you going to do that? I mean, come on. Chisme is not serious. We're a serious show. And actually, that's what ends up happening is, um, and I think the other thing is that you do, in fact, have to trust your younger journalists. I think part of the, the way that the world of journalism has been perceived is that, you know, you have a senior person and you kind of have to prove yourself. And I think for us, it's like, yeah, of course we have, you know, senior people, senior editorial. But we, again, we believe in you probably more than you believe in yourself. So come in with that idea because we're probably going to let you run with it. And, you know, one of our younger producers years ago when we started to rejigger Latino USA and led to our success was like, let's do 24 hours in a bodega, in a New York City bodega. And it's like, are you kidding? It was a great, great show. Um, so I think that that's the way we've remained, remained viable is that allowing the staff to organically change and be representative as opposed to it has to be done like this and it must be done like this and it has to be told like this. And instead recognizing that our community is dynamic and changing and we have to reflect that in our reporting. So here's a, a, a complete right turn from uh, one of our viewers who asked, should the awards given to reporters on the now debunked Russiagate story be taken away from those reporters? So, Mark. I don't know how, I mean, certainly, I mean, you look at over time, going back and re-judging contests and it's a pain enough to judge it the first time. 
but you go back and look at um, that. And there's a lot of things that could be taken back. I think of H.L. Mencken, for example. And um, certainly it's worth somebody doing, but I don't know that many of us have the time to do it. Uh, we should always be judging though. I think it's the kind of thing where the next year's contest ought to frame it as part of the discussion and saying, what have we learned from this? And can we do it better? I think maybe it's a lesson in not being stampeded, you know, by by you know, pack journalism and the story of the day, and these things sometimes take life, take on lives of their own, and kind of create this momentum that gets out of control. So maybe the larger question is, you know, what did we, what did the media learn from getting carried away uh, with a story like that, Maria? So I'm just going to tell you, I'm a little bit late to the game. But I did end up recently watching uh, a series, don't ask me what channel it's on, called Impeachment. Mm -hmm. And it's the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton story. And, you know, I was a juror. I did not cover the scandal uh, of what happened. Uh, but I was peripherally, peripherally uh, a journalist at the time, just not in Washington, D.C. And if you look at the framing of that story and how Monica Lewinsky was framed, I, you know, I followed her on Twitter and it's like, I still haven't done a public apology, but it's like, I want to publicly apologize because talk about getting swept up and how do we understand why some people have a problem with the media? That's a, that's a really perfect example. And the term misogyny, it's a, it's a very weighty term, but in fact, if you have media that is run overwhelmingly by men in their fifties, the analysis and interpretation of what happened with the Monica Lewinsky story and how people saw Monica and, and throwing Monica Lewinsky under the bus makes perfect sense. But that story would be told very differently today. Uh, and so that's why it's like, again, context and historical context. You know, I'm, I don't want to defend uh, white men in their 50s, Lord knows, but you know, th this obsession with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard is not being driven by old white guys. I mean, the people I know who are obsessed with that are young and female. And so I and think that and that and that particular like what what happened in that case is really fascinating. I think um, it's a super important story and, and coverage. But at the same time, uh, you're talking to a lot of I've spoken to quite a bit of quite a few young women, and I think they don't feel any safer because of it. Right. Yeah. Another question from a, of a viewer, it's, you know, who gets to decide what is false information and why not just allow all information and let the public debate? And I suppose this person might be talking about, you know, canceling people on Twitter or requiring social media to, you know, to truth police. But, you know, this larger question of who gets to decide what is truth and what information gets to the public is a, is a large question that we all wrestle with. Uh, uh, Mark, do you want to take that first? Sure. And it's been a question since Socrates, so the trial of Socrates. Um, there is no good answer. I mean, all you can do as a media projector is to try to get the best possible version of the truth you have. I like breaking down journalism into a ge geometric formula, and that would be truth plus X equals news. And you never know what X is going to be. Sometimes it could be a reporter having a bad day. Sometimes it could be a failure to do your job. It could be um, a missed phone call. 
And our job is to try to make that X as small as possible and to keep at it. As far as the public conveyors, I think that's a very different question. Uh, do we want to live in a society that allows real hate speech? And is it something that um, uh, we can somehow basically have a reaction to? And it's not as much a protection as it is common courtesy. Right. Right. Maria, who gets to? Oh, we've been joined by another member of the family, I see. This is Benito Juarez, named after the first indigenous president of Mexico. Um, and he sometimes needs to be with his mom, so hopefully he'll be quiet. Um, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. It's been a conversation since Plato. The problem is, is that, and that's why I'm so thankful to be in this conversation with you, Bill and Mark, because we have to be having these dialogues. Um, we, we, in fact, have to be constantly questioning each other and asking ourselves to do better. You know, again, if we go back to what Donald Trump did when he launched his, his campaign, actually spreading lies. Um, and why are we saying that? It's because, again, we have the data that we can look at. We have the numbers. We have... So if we're suddenly at a point where there's where no numbers are believed, um, we're in a very dangerous place. But my concern is that I feel like we, we've, it's not that the conversation is too late, it needs to happen. But I feel like, I really wish that we would have been having these robust conversations about how do we get at the truth? <clears throat> how do you tell a story, if not objectively, but then you're attempting to understand all sides? How do you not uh, damage our democracy and the reporting that you're doing? Look, when I was covering uh, violence in the Kenyan elections in the year 2007, when the media was in, this was after Rwanda, and Kenya is right next to Rwanda, and and journalists, media was accused of being part of the problem of setting people uh, into their divisions. And so journalists at a very senior level in, um, in Kenya said, we have to learn how to practice peace journalism. Hmm. And I said, what is that concept? And I, I, I was like already, oh my God, if you come back to the United States and say you wanna practice peace journalism, oh my God, what an agenda. But they said, we have to take responsibility that what we are trying to do with whatever we put on the front page, the images, that we are not inciting violence, right? That we are thinking about taking care of the community and it's not about inciting violence. And I think it's a concept worth, worth, worth discussing um, because again, we have to evolve and, and this notion that American media is 100% perfect, it's not, we have to do better. Sort of where we started this conversation was, which is, you know, re-victimizing victims. And we need to re remember to first do no harm, right? Mark, you wanted to add something. I was just going to add that around the turn of the 19th century, the Idaho statesman ran editorials calling for a large feast to be held so they could give strychnine to every Indian in the state. <laughs> so it wasn't that long ago that... Um, the media was used, particularly for the kinds of things we're trying to prevent now. 
And again, I think if we raise the standards for everybody, it, it's just better discourse. And that ought to be the goal. Well said. So we've reached the end of our, our, our conversation. I want to close by asking you if um, when we talk about the future of, of our media, which is so important to you know, our functioning democracy and, and polarization that is uh, plaguing our society, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? And do you have something you want to advise viewers to learn or do or something to make their experience you know, consuming media smarter, better, healthier, less frustrating? And so why don't we start with you, Mark? I am a serial optimist. And um, I think the capacity for using media for good continues to amaze me. And I see it virtually every day. And um, I guess to me, the one message that I would love people to know is particularly with college students, I want them to know that there's this great career ahead and we're just beginning on a really amazing journey and they should get excited about it and invest their future in it because it's going to be a great ride. So your advice to people is, young people is become a journalist and help be part of the solution. Absolutely. Maria. Uh, I wish I could say I'm a serial optimist. Uh, uh, you know, it depends on the day. I mean, I'm optimistic for Futuro Media, right? Which I run, right? Uh, I'm very optimistic. And when I see the work of our journalists, the care, for example, right now, you know, Latino USA is not a breaking news show. And yet because of Uvalde, we're, you know, changing things up and we're doing a, a one hour documentary in a span of a week. And I'm watching the producers and the kind of care and attention that they're giving and do no harm in our stories uh, in reporting. And I feel so invigorated by what they're doing. Um, and they feel invigorated by watching me, yes, a seasoned journalist who's been through this a while and how I'm able to manage. So I feel like they're learning from me and I'm learning from them. And it's just like, and we're producing something that's gonna be very profound. And this is when I feel incredibly optimistic or when Suave wins a Pulitzer. I'm just like, this is, in, this is incredible. Or Jelani Cobb is named as the Dean of the Columbia Journalism School. I mean, this is just like, wow. And then there are the days when I see what some of our colleagues, I mean, you know, I know Tucker Carlson. I mean, I'm not gonna say I was a friend of Tucker Carlson's, we didn't hang out, but we worked in the same company. I saw him, what is this that he's doing? What is this horror when he knows my kids who are Latinos and speak Spanish? What, he's threatened by them? So, you know, when I think of Fox as an entity, Fox News, I become incredibly depressed. So my message is get involved. I love what Mark says. Yes, become a journalist, 100%. Do it. If you feel it, do it. Don't doubt it. Is it easy? No, but nothing is easy. But for all of you who consume the media, you're part of this too. And we need you engaged at every moment, whether it's supporting the work that Mark is doing or I'm doing or your local public radio or local commercial radio or television. We need you there engaging, not just being an, in a, a, a bystander. So after today, because it's Idaho, I'm feeling a little optimistic. <laughs> 
Well, I want to thank you both for, for uh, the great conversation and uh, you know, the insights you've shared with us. I also want to thank um, the IHC staff to put this together uh, so smoothly. And I want to thank the people who spent the time uh, with us. It's been, a, it's been a great conversation. June 14th, we're going to uh, talk to three Idaho editors about the future of media in Idaho and elsewhere. So please come back June 14th and join us for that conversation. And other than that, I think we're done. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for Maria and hope to see you in Idaho. That sounds good. Good night. I can't good night. wait. Bye. Looking forward Bye. to it.